You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with John Hennessy, who is a professor of computer science at Stanford University, also the former president of Stanford University, who currently heads up the Knight Hennessy Scholar Program, also does a little bit of work on the side as uh, chair of a little company called Alphabet, (laughs) has also founded a very important company back in the day, and also is the author of multiple books. This textbook here, which I have a copy of called Computer Architecture, co-authored with David Patterson, and also this one, which came out just a few years ago called Leading Matters Lessons from My Journey. Welcome, John. Thank you, Greg. Delighted to be here. Well, look, the title of my podcast is Unsiloed, and so I can't think of somebody who is sort of a better guest (laughs) than you because you have been straddling a number of silos across your career from being a founder of a company to a scholar to a book author and an administrator. And then you wrote this book on, on leadership. And I guess there's so many questions I have for you, and I'll throw a couple out there and then we'll see how this goes. So first of all, you know, we look at places like universities similar to hospitals and law firms, architectural firms, the people who run these places are not professional managers. And my career has been primarily the training of professional managers. One of the questions we have is, well, either these administrators are doing a fantastic job, in which case that proves that professional management training is unnecessary, or they're not doing a great job, in which case maybe we should rethink kind of who runs these institutions. Now, I think you, by all accounts, you did a fantastic job as an administrator, and yet you did so without any formal training in the field. The second question I would have is, you're writing a book on leadership, but you know, you're obviously not a scholar of leadership. You're a scholar of computer science. So it's kind of like Michael Jordan writing a book on how to play basketball. Oftentimes, the people who do things aren't necessarily the ones who really understand what it is that they're doing. And then I guess the third question, sorry for throwing out somebody at you at the same time, is you're a lifelong learner, you've learned on the job, and one of the ways in which you learned was reading books. And you read a lot of books about a lot of leaders, mostly history. And I was looking at the coda at the back of your book, which had all these books that helped influence your leadership journey, and there were very few leadership management books. And I didn't find any by my colleagues over... (laughs) At GSB. So I was, I, was, I was wondering, is history and literature, because you also read a lot of literature, can history and literature tell us more about leadership and help us to become better leaders, better than management books? So sorry to throw so many questions out at you. We can, we can take it. <laughs> well, those are all great questions. <laughs> all right. Well, let's start with the first, to start with thinking about universities and academic institutions. I mean, they are unusual institutions because there's a shared governance structure, which is so different than the corporate world. I mean, let's face it, faculty have a lot more power than employees, even the top employees at a company like Google. It is a shared governance structure. The number of people who come from outside academia and become university presidents and fail because they don't understand that aspect and they were not of the faculty is large. But I think you are absolutely right that Many people are promoted to the academic ranks and fall into these 
administrative positions and leadership positions, which they don't have any experience. And for me, I've always said the few years I spent in the Valley on leave from Stanford starting a company was much more influential in terms of learning new skills. That's where I did my first layoff and figured out how do you retrench and how do you do it appropriately? And, you know, in the 2008 financial crisis, that was absolutely crucial. We were the institution that took immediate action and reset, realizing that the endowment had lost a third of its value and it wasn't going to come back overnight. And I had learned in doing a layoff that the best thing to do it, do it quickly, get through it, and then start rebuilding. And that's what we did. And we managed to, to get through the entire process in less than a year and, and reset the clock. The other thing I discovered, quite frankly, is the importance of team. So uh, I went out and got really gr a great general counsel, a great CFO, a great person to manage the endowment. And th those are key because in those roles uh, at the building, I mean, universities mismanage their capital projects incredibly. And so they constantly are facing cost overruns. Those are millions of dollars. You're building a hundred million dollar building. You get a 30% overrun. That's $30 million. I mean, so. We really brought in professional people to run those. And I told my colleagues, we do a good job over there. That is not the academic core of the university. But if we do a good job over there, every dollar we save over there is a dollar we can put into the academic side of the institution. And I think that's certainly, certainly clear. You asked about when I wrote this book. This book is a, it's a personal journey. It's written as a set of stories about what I learned uh, in, along the way. and. You know, when we were deciding what order to put the chapters in, this was the back in the early 2000, you know, probably 2016, 2018, I decided to put the humility chapter first because I think it's something that we've seen a, a set of leaders out there who don't have humility. And or for me, humility was about both realizing that I was able to be successful because I stood on the shoulders of many other people who had contributed along the way, both to my education and to my opportunity to do this, but also to recognize that you're not the expert on everything. And bringing in experts, people who really know the field is really crucial to, to building a team that can be successful. You also are on the board of Cisco. And I remember John Chambers came to visit Berkeley a couple of years back, and he was very adamant that to be a leader, you had to listen, to go out there and listen to what other people are saying. But there's so many companies where that's not the case. Like for instance, if I'm sitting on my laptop or I'm walking through the hallways, I'm being bombarded by advertisements because these companies, they want my money. What I'm not being bombarded by is requests for my insight <laughs> by my coworkers, by my bosses, by all the institutions that I associate with. And in fact, in many institutions, if you approach a decision maker with some kind of advice or insight, the normal response is one of defensiveness of how do I get, get rid of this person, right? How do I deflect this? And, and I think it, part of it has to do with the fact that it's, like you say, part of it has to do with the way in which these leaders think leadership operates, but part of it's also about the organizational design where a lot of leaders, particularly in universities, they, they think of themselves as in the business of constituent service. And they're just constantly responding to all of these. They're being bombarded by all of these requests slash ideas and, and their goal is to deflect them and, and manage them. So part of what you're describing is you, you, you focus on the mission 
And by focusing on the mission, it allows you to manage all of these constituents. So is it about developing leadership talent or is it in business schools, we, we have people who say you got to be focusing on leadership talent. The other folks in the business school say you got to focus on like organizational design. You think there's a crisis in leadership and that's what's inspired you to start the Knight Hennessy Scholarship Program. Do you think that the organizational problems primarily stem from organizational design or from leadership challenges, and leadership problems? Well, probably some of each. I think certainly there is knowledge about organizational structure and design that can make the organization more effective. But I think there's also a failure in leadership, people's unwillingness to do difficult things and to deal with difficult messages, always a hard thing. We all naturally like to soft pedal the bad news, but sometimes we soft pedal it to our harm uh, to the institution that we're serving. I, I think, you know, one of the real challenges, particularly in the academic setting, the academic setting, your, your constituencies are complicated, more complicated in the corporate setting. Well, corporate setting, yeah, you've got, you've got your shareholders, you've got your customers, you have your employees, and to some extent, you have the local community in which you operate. You know, in the university, you've got students, staff, faculty, you've got your alumni that all have a stake in the institution. And then you've got the, the group we serve, right? Companies that hire graduates. You've got the feds because we are a, a federal research institution. You've got state governments. And I think the thing that is hardest sometimes is they may not agree on what an institution should do with respect to something. And balancing that, which in my mind really takes a razor sharp focus on what is the mission? How do I best serve? I've got these multiple constituencies. I can't ignore one, but how do I best serve the entire community? And how do I ensure? One thing I thought about, you know, as I was getting ready to give my inaugural address, I was thinking back to Stanford's original leaders. And I said, how do I make sure that a hundred years from now, they're saying, well, Hennessy did the right thing and this was the right step and it was good for the university and oh, versus Look what this look what this guy did gave us this problem down the road that has really made the institution more vulnerable to difficulties and tragedies. Well, look, you've been at Stanford for over 40 years. That's increasingly rare in, in today's world. I mean, people are hopscotching from job to job. Does that make it more difficult to be a leader? Because I mean, some people would say, oh, you need to bring in a fresh leader who can look at things with fresh perspectives. But really understanding the organization and, and its mission and feeling a sense of belonging, surely that, that must help as well, certainly in terms of getting credibility with your colleagues. What are the trade-offs? Is part of the crisis in leadership that we see due to the constant turnover that we see from company to company? Yeah, probably there is some that relates to that. I mean, the real truth is, you know, what do you, what do you look for in a leader? You look for somebody who's going to set a longer-term course who's going to think about the strategic issues. Of course, you've got to manage the crisis of today. You've got to manage whether you're a CEO managing the next quarterly earnings or the yearly profit. But what do you really want from a CEO? You want them to set the company up for success five, 10 years down the road. That's what we really, that's what you really care about. Uh, despite the fact that Wall Street pushes you to, to, towards a much shorter term mentality. You know, that's the good thing about universities, it, that they do have this longer term focus. It's kind of inherently built in to what they are. And so if you can keep your eyes on the future and think about that, and of course, you've got to think about things like opportunity cost. You've got to think about 
creating negative incentives in some sense, which could undermine the institution. But I think there's good alignment. One of the challenges you face in the in academic leadership is that we do not do a particularly good job of preparing people for succession and for management and moving up the chain. Unlike corporations do a much better job uh, in terms of preparing their leaders to take on bigger roles. In fact, when I became president, we started something called the Leadership Academy that Chuck Holloway, my colleague in the business school, and John Mordridge led for us to try to take the people who are the rising stars in the university, who are the future deans and vice presidents, and prepare them for this role so they, they would be better at it. And it turned out it's worked amazingly well. It's really helped prepare people. But I took that page right out of Cisco and my experience as a Cisco board member. Money people would view a, quote, promotion to administrative role as anything but promotion, right? There's a recent TV show, right, called The the Chair. I'm not, I don't know if you've heard of this or seen yeah, this. Uh, TV. <laughs> right? When she was appointed chair, everyone was saying, I'm sorry to hear that, right? Like, uh, it was the opposite of congratulations. Do we want our best researchers to be our administrators or should like our failed researchers that we should funnel into administrative roles? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think you want somebody with sufficient scholarly achievement and gravitas that they can stand there and say something and get their colleagues to buy into them. But I think it's not the right role for everybody. And all of us, you know, I'm a big believer, as as you mentioned, in that experiential journey as being the thing you draw from and you learn from. But you also have to you have to like the job. You have to find enjoyment in the job. I, I tell people, Nobody I know can be successful if they don't love what they're doing because they won't, they won't have the enthusiasm, the energy, the willingness to chase after things with what they need to have. And you discover on the way that whether or not you like that. And what I discovered is I really loved helping people succeed, whether it was faculty, colleagues or students or and that I could feel enjoyment when somebody at the institution you know, won the Nobel Prize or got a Rhodes Scholarship or did something else tremendous or, you know, won a Rose Bowl. I mean, it, and if you can feel the that you helped, you didn't do it, but you helped create the environment in which this person could thrive, that, that's, a, that's a wonderful uh, feeling. Stanford is really u- unique. We can't pretend it's not. I mean, where else are you going to find someone who is a founder of a company like MIPS and who can later go on to become a chair of Alphabet and also run the university for 16 years? And it was only towards the end of the book when you mentioned Fred Terman, but I always thought of you as sort of Fred Terman's successor, not so much Leland and Jane Stanford's successor, but like Fred Terman. And he created something and i gone around the world and talked to university administrators about kind of the Stanford model. And they're all perplexed by it. They're like, how on earth do you do that, right? How do you create an institution where the boundaries between the institution and the the larger world are so permeable that people can take time off? And, you know, at a place like Berkeley, I remember it was at Bar Rosenberg, was a finance professor who founded a company. And the administrator basically said, look, if you want to start a company, that's great, but you can't be a professor, right? But at Stanford, you can go in and out and... As grad students go in and out, when Sergey and Larry left and started Google, their advisors weren't, you losers, 
You know, whereas at a typical university, you'd say, wait, you're not taking a tenure track job at MIT? Okay, I want to wash my hands of you. So other universities are trying to emulate this, but how unique is that? I mean, how difficult is that to manage? Don't they require very, very different minds? I mean, even if you're a researcher at Google, and you talk about this in the book, you're going to operate differently than if you're a researcher at a university. How do you flip on and off the different kind of research roles and the different kind of managerial roles? Yeah, now, there are certainly, let's start with the, the bigger picture here. I think the bigger picture to start with is, is there merit in seeing these research breakthroughs make their way out into industry and benefit people? And the answer to that is absolutely yes, there's merit. And some of the most disruptive ideas have to go the entrepreneurial route because they disrupt too many existing product lines and and there's a big not invented here uh, problem to overcome. So so I think that's that's certainly been true. There are certainly conflicts of interest and things you have to manage. I mean, we are very clear to people, okay? When you're on leave, you're on leave. When you're back here, you're a faculty member, right? And you're back doing your research and teaching. And so you've got to keep those kinds of things clear. And then it's about finding and structuring teams. Larry and Sergey had a great vision, a real vision of what they wanted to do with the company. And luckily, they were able to recruit Eric Schmidt to come in as CEO. And Eric had the management talent in order to think about how to build and shape the company. And that, that trio just worked amazingly well. Forming those things, you know, you, you mentioned Terman. I mean, the other great inspiration in terms of thinking about this are Hewlett and Packard, right? Who Terman was the one that introduced them and brought them together and told them, Go start a company. And, and he, he really wanted to see a West Coast industry and he inspired them to do that. But Hewlett Packard brought a whole new approach to management, open door policy, you know, a much more meritocracy organized thing and a, and a technology driven firm from the beginning. And I think that's, that has pervaded the valley, that pervaded how. Intel was organized and, and how Microsoft thought about their role. And then later how companies like Yahoo and Google and Cisco thought about their roles. Well, so, you know, every university wants to put that magic in a, in a bottle and, yeah. and, and capitalize <laughs> on it. Right. Secret but, sauce. I mean, we call it secret sauce. <laughs> yeah. So, well, you know, what are they doing wrong? I mean, you talk a little bit about how technology transfer, right? Increasingly universities are interested in, in technology transfer and they're setting up accelerators and they're, setting up venture arms and getting good at commercializing the intellectual property developed by the faculty members. But are they being penny wise and, and pound foolish? Are they, I mean, what, what are some of the, some of the do's and don'ts when it comes to really being the, the font of all this innovation? So sometimes they get, uh, several things can go wrong in that process. In one direction, they get so concerned with getting their return on the investment that they make the whole licensing process and the process for a faculty member wanting to start something treacherous <laughs> and difficult. And I think, you know, somebody once pointed out that if we had licensed the initial technology to Hewlett and Packard, and we took all that revenue from that licensing, that their philanthropic gifts to the university are probably 10,000 times larger than that. So by, by taking the long-term perspective, I think we've done well. I think the other thing that happens is you know, there's, we have the advantage that you're sitting here in the middle of the valley, right? You've got these venture capital investors that are pretty smart, that have done a lot of companies. 
they can make tough decisions. They can decide, okay, this this faculty member's uh, opportunity is really great. This one maybe not so great. The market's not there or we don't see the product fit. It's very hard if you're inside the university to put together a team that's going to uh, evaluate faculty inventions and say yes to one and no to the other. And that, that gets back to the whole governance structure that we have in universities and the role that faculty play. And I've told some of my administrative colleagues who they learned this the hard way, that a young assistant professor could say no to a vice president of the university and really make it difficult. And so that, how do you make those tough decisions about which things to invest in and when to pull the plug? Because lots of entrepreneurs who are, let's say, not successful, but not total failures, don't want to pull the plug. They don't want to call the question. And yet at some point you have to call the question. What is the comparative advantage of the research that's done in universities versus the research that's done in large companies? Large companies have like Alphabet and with the Moonshot Lab, and there's yeah. lots of research happening. And, and some people would argue that in fields like data science, like a lot of the best, biggest advances have happened in corporate yeah. research labs. Plan AI. That's certainly yeah, true. Yeah, so what is it, what's the comparative advantage? Like, you know, some would say primary research is for the universities and applied research is for the companies. But, you know, Stanford has straddled that divide for years. What's the proper division of labor here? I th you raise a good question. I mean, I think one has to look at kind of the evolution of these things over time. I mean, if you go back far enough, there were, you had Bell Labs and Xerox PARC and IBM Research, which were doing quite fundamental work Again, not that distinguishable necessarily from the universities, perhaps not at the full size of the, uh, of the universities. What universities do is they do the kind of research that's usually out over the horizon from where companies are looking. So it's further out. It, it tends to be less restricted by the bounds that may come from a product or a company vision of where they're going. And we have one really secret ingredient, and they're called graduate students. And they are the secret ingredient of university research, along with postdocs in the medical field. Why? Because they come in brilliant young people, clean sheet. They're not biased by what's come before, and they're looking to make a difference, right? And I, I you know, I think of Larry and Sergey going and working on search, and you know, we had other search engines, and I thought they were okay. You know, they they were a lot better than what had come before, and you know, you know, what what are you going to do in search? What are you going and then when I saw my first demo of Google, um, it took like 30 seconds to realize, boy, this is a lot better. There's a really key insight here in this and what they've done. So that kind of willingness to, to take a look at problems, to look with a new perspective and fresh eyes, that's something that's really unique. And if you think about universities, we have this added advantage that every year, a large fraction of the most brilliant people at the place graduate. And they go out into the world and they're going to seed all these ideas out there. And that, that means the universities play this incredible role in fertilizing the next generation of technology and scientific discovery. Well, I think at some point in the book, you talk about how the universities are, they can be patient, right? They can invest in research that may not pay off for a really long time, whereas corporations have to meet the bottom line. They have to report the numbers to the shareholders. But you were involved in a company at a very early stage with, you know, MIPS and at a company that's a much more mature company like Google. So do these companies, on the one hand, you could say as they become public and they start exposing themselves to the pressures of the public financial markets, they have to shed some of this primary research. But on the other hand, you could argue that 
now they have a financial cushion, which allows them to do all sorts of, of stuff. As your experience in these different stages of corporate evolution, it seems like larger companies have resources where they can really invest in groundbreaking research. And yet it seems like most of the groundbreaking research comes from the, like the startups, the ones that are breaking new ground. Yeah. I think we are seeing, we're really seeing this in the last decade or so, this rise of the new generation of research laboratories in industry at Microsoft, at Google, at Facebook, at Amazon, at these large companies who are real. I mean, right now you said it, the cutting edge of AI research is as much in those companies as it is in the university. And, you know, you've got things like DeepMind out there doing everything, working on protein folding. I mean, here, here a, a company working on AI makes a breakthrough on a problem that has been a cornerstone problem for structural biologists for 50 years. And, and these guys make a breakthrough and all of a sudden leap ahead of where we were. So I, I think, you know, that's shifting, but there's also a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of back and forth. So we have two of our scholars are spending the summer in deep mind in, in London working in deep mind. I mean, so there's a lot of this back and forth and, and cross fertilization that's occurring. And these research labs, like some of the earlier uh, research labs, you know, have a degree of openness about them that's not quite a university because they do have a shareholder obligation and a corporate obligation, but they're more open to collaboration and working together. And I think that's important. Now, when you're, when you're a professor, a researcher, and, and even when you're group chair, department chair, your focus is primarily on research and the research that your faculty does. But then when you get higher up in the organization, then the teaching mission becomes obviously a lot more important. And you are reminded that that was sort of why the university was created in the first place, was to educate young people. Some people would argue that this is an unnatural combination of two very distinct activities. Now, perhaps I think the teaching of graduate students and PhD students to teach them to become researchers, I think there's clearly a complementarity there. But is sort of undergraduate education, does it really make sense? Is it logical that they would be under the same roof? Is there a tension between the teaching mission and the research mission at, at a university like Stanford? Well, it's, it's interesting you asked this question because, of course, that is the American model. I mean, and it really, it was a set of universities created in the late 1800s, Stanford, John Hopkins, Cornell, that really embraced this model, which was quite different, even though they were partly inspired in the research side by models of research institutes in Germany, they were much more separate, as you alluded to. So there's a blending there. I think certainly the quality of undergraduate education, and particularly undergraduates, has to be, particularly for the leadership at the top of the university, has to be a front and center mission. And in the, it was a famous report by the Carnegie Institution in the late 1980s that chastised uh, the research universities for not paying enough attention to their undergraduate experience. And that led to a re reinvigoration and a renewal of that undergraduate experience. So today, I mean, the last, since I stepped down as president, in addition to working with my scholars, where I spend probably most of my time, every year I teach, a, I've been teaching a freshman seminar. So I take 15 to 20 bright young freshmen and we look at some of the, we look at the most important discoveries and inventions in computing and really try to understand them and how they work and what they do. And, 
and that's a fantastic experience. And that's a group of freshmen and it's, it's real. And they're, they're the only criteria for them being there is that they can articulate why they want to take this course, not what grades they had, not anything else, but why they'd be a great addition to this course. So I think things like that. And the other thing I think the great research universities have done is try to much more emphasize the opportunities for undergraduates to be involved in research and have that opportunity to do that. So they can decide, I want every undergraduate, when they get near their senior year to say, I want to do a graduate degree, or I want to go to professional school, or I want to go to work. And to really understand some of those trade-offs as they think about that, where they're going and what they want to do. I was recruited as an undergraduate to be what they call the university scholar at UPenn, where we were to basically be apprentice researchers from day one. But is there also a benefit to the professors themselves to engage in this activity, right? So clearly exposing the undergraduates to research is positive, but is there some benefit that the researcher gets from having to engage these, these young people and teach stuff that might be more basic than what they're doing the research in? Yeah, I, I think, you know, for me, it, it, teaching in a freshman seminar is incredibly rewarding, partly because it's not required. No student has to take this. They have to be passionate about it. So, and people teach all kinds of interesting things. You know, my, uh, one of my colleagues in physics who uh, has a Nobel Prize in physics teaches a course on photography and he teaches about the physics of photography and how to have stops actually work. What does depth of field mean? All kinds of interesting things like this. So I think there's a breadth of opportunity for the students and they're intensely rewarding experiences to teach young people and really, really help them open up their minds to something and, and think differently about a field. And similarly, I think in the research setting, both for the energy they bring, but also the opportunity to provide mentorship opportunities for graduate students, for example, who are thinking about faculty careers, you know, work with an undergraduate and learn how to mentor an undergraduate as a, as a beginning of something. Because eventually, if you're a faculty member, you're going to be mentoring graduate students at some point. So it's a great experiential learning opportunity. Well, you said in the book that your greatest task is to improve yourself and become a, a, better, a better person. And as an undergraduate or as a student uh, researcher at university, that's not usually the explicit mission. You're learning to basically make your way in the world, learn a profession and so forth. And you mentioned that when you started taking on senior positions, both as provost and a president, you became more aware of the non-engineering fields. You became more aware of the, the arts. And it seems like it's, it's a lot harder to evaluate the impact of work in the arts. At least with engineering, you can say, okay, look, here are all these great patents that came out of here. This is all this great innovations. All these people went off and founded all these companies. How would we evaluate the, the role of the arts in a major research university? I think it's a very good question. When you get to the arts and humanities, the same standards are not applicable. We can use certain standards in science and engineering that are different. So the first thing is we have to, we have to understand that you can't compare apples and oranges here. You've got to have a different. But, you know, I, I remember when we were talking to the Andersons about giving their collection to the university, which they eventually did. Um, and it's one of the finest collections of modern American art on certainly on any university in, in, in the world, uh, one of the finest. And th they said something really interesting to me. They said, how do we choose artists? They said, well, we choose people who do something. I haven't seen anything like that before. It's different. Could I have thought of it? Does it make me think deeply about something 
um, a relationship or something. And that I, those are the kinds of things you're thinking about. They're, in some sense, the arts are the provocateurs to get us to think outside the box, to get us to deal with ambiguity, right? Scientists hate ambiguity. The arts embrace ambiguity as part of the human tradition and the way we live. And so getting people to think differently about that, those kinds of things is really, is really key. I think that appreciation for the role the arts have, you know, one of the, one of the great joys I had was when the champ, when the Dean of the business school championed the role of the arts in educating MBAs. So this was a really terrific thing because if you can get the Dean of the business school to talk about how important the arts are to MBA education, uh, that's, that's a real achievement in terms of breaking down the stovepipes between various disciplines. Yeah, because I mean, it seems like when you rattle off all the characteristics, you know, you talk about humility and empathy and, and courage, right? I mean, where do we learn this stuff? We typically will learn that from literature or history or from these these other things, which which you've talked a lot about. How, how did your reading change? You you mentioned that as soon as you were put in these leadership positions, you you had to change the way in which you did your lifelong learning. And I still don't understand how you can crank out new editions of the computer architecture book every couple of years if you're also reading all of those books that you have. I mean, I read a lot of books, but I am not writing textbooks. This is just a monumental work. I don't know how you yeah, do both. Yeah, well, the, the textbook is a the textbook is a once every five years take up the summer. I mean, we're doing the seventh edition of that book right now, and and it's block out, block out, four or five months, and you know, submerge yourself in the field. The good news is, you know, Dave Patterson and I have contributed enough to the field that we can call up any researcher in the world in the field and say. Could you lend me your data because I want to use it in our new book? And we get a positive answer back. But that breadth of reading, I think, you know, I'm a, uh, as you can probably know from the book, I'm a big fan of Lincoln and, and what he was able to do under extremely difficult circumstances, you know, and how to craft a team of outstanding people who were not, not friends with one or necessarily friends with him at the beginning and how to, how to lead through those really difficult, uh, stressful times. I mean, and, and I think, you know, having the courage to get up and do the right thing and say the right thing at the right moment. And those are, those are hard. Those are hard experiences to have to do that. The first time yeah, I, I talk about in the book, getting up when we had to do a layoff at MIPS and getting up and being given, the CEO says, you're in charge of stirring the crowd and inspiring that this is still going to be a good company and it's going to be great. And that was really hard. But once you've done that, it's easier the next time you have to do it. And you didn't delegate it to a hatchet man. I think that was the, oh, oh, no, the, the no. key lesson. It's, uh, it was too personal. You know, it's 120 people. We had to lay off about 40 people. And you, you basically, you know, everybody in the company. And so, but it was about survival. And sometimes you have to do tough things to survive. Now, like you stepped down what six years ago, a lot of people I've talked to some former deans who have said, former ministers said, man, I wouldn't want to be a dean today. It seems like it's a lot harder. You mentioned in the book a couple examples where you had people protesting, people outside of your house, even raising a racket. And th this seems to be more and more a uh, popular way to move the needle on things. Do you think that the since given the more vitriolic nature of discourse, today and, and the more militant demands that people are, are making on administrators, does this really make it harder to be an administrator? Are there any new skills that you think would have to 
be developed? Would you have to have thicker skin now? Even though you describe a lot of conflict, you also describe a lot of situations where you were able to make a lot of decisions with with a lot of coordination and a lot of agreement. No, I, I think I think there is a vitriol to to commentary and opposition now. I mean, you see it, it it probably started in our political context and it's moved across now into all walks of life, right? Uh, people come in and say, I demand, here are my demands. They're not things I'd like to propose, they're demands. And so that's made it more difficult. I think it's also been very hard for administrators. I mean, you're stuck in this position. You're going to be held responsible for any decisions you make about COVID, even, even though it's really to a large extent out of your hands, right? The county or state health people are deciding things and you're conveying those. And I think it's made it, it's made it really, really challenging. Um, and I think that, you know, to, to some extent, the the way in which universities have evolved over time, you've got a lot of things that can cause problems that are, I mean, athletics can go off the rails and it has gone off the rails at a number of major institutions. And you think athletics are fine. They're a great addition to the university, but they're not what we're really about at the core. And yet they can, they can suck down a leader's time completely if they go off the rails. I have a lot of friends who have worked in the field of HR analytics, and there are increasingly sophisticated models out there for identifying who you want to recruit and hire and, and so forth. Universities are thinking about using more of these techniques. They, they're not quite there. But for the Knight Hennessy Scholar Program, how do you identify future leaders? I mean, you have what, like a 1% acceptance rate. So yeah, one, one and a half, right in that range. How do you identify who, what are you looking for? And how do you know you're looking for the right thing? I mean, right now you probably only have a little bit of data, but I mean, are you going to be tracking what happens and then try to learn from that, feed that back into the admissions process, feed it back into what it is that they're, they're learning? Now, the Rhodes Scholarship doesn't have any unified curriculum, right? They just you, you right. go to Oxford and you study whatever you study. And, and the only right. thing is you get some money. Do you have a, a richer view of the things that you want people to, to learn, like empathy, to be effective leaders? And will you have a way of evaluating those interventions to see if they actually add yeah. value? Yeah, they're good questions. I think as, as you build a program like this, the first thing you can measure is, did you pick, did you pick the right people? At least once they get into the program, do they have the do they have the kind of characteristics you thought you were looking for? Are they thriving in their graduate program? So that's, that's the first thing we can measure. And then are we adding value? And we try to add value in a variety of ways. I think one of the things we realized early on is bringing together a group of young, highly accomplished people who want to see themselves, who see themselves doing good things for the world over time. Just bringing them together, giving them the opportunity to get to know one another, to work together. So, and we, so we tried a variety of things from a first year, we, everybody comes to a, a storytelling um, speaking course and, and joins us and learns how to tell their story and talk about their journey and their vision of where they want to go. But we also have a, a collaborative set of projects, Keystone projects that these students work on. They and they pick things they work on that they're interested in. We had one young woman who said that number one public position that most people in the United States get is, a, is a being on a local school board. And yet there is no training for people who go on school boards. And it's a vitally important position. 
can't we build up some online training courses to help people who are going to go on school boards because it's vital. And so she put a project together with several of her colleagues to try to build this kind of capability. So I think we're doing lots of interesting things like that. And for us, one of the most amazing things is you bring in these people and we've got so in the, this will be our fifth cohort coming in this year. We have, we'll have students in 85 different programs across the university. So when we get together, you've got a lawyer, you've got a doctor, you've got a molecular biologist, you've got a computer scientist, you've got an environmental person, all mixing together and trying to learn from one another. And that's what we think is a really valuable addition that we can make to their education. Yeah, that, that sounds awesome. I mean, most universities are so fragmented where people just become more and more more specialized that they don't even interact with people. I, I know colleagues that have no clue where the where the history department is, <laughs> where the where's the physics department? I have no idea. It's somewhere down there, you know. <laughs> like they've never really interacted with colleagues from different disciplines. And so creating a mechanism for that interaction, I think, is is fantastic. So, you know, one question I have, you mentioned online, you've been studying computer architecture for your entire life, and you've seen the move from client server to, to PC and now to cloud and, and edge computing. And I'm wondering, I mean, are we seeing sort of a similar, you can think of the universities as they do storage and compute as well. And the distribution of the storage and compute is evolving. Maybe you could go back and look at the Catholic Church is the client server model, right? Where the, all the stuff was just pushed out to the extremities. And then, you know, we went through a period where you've got all these universities all doing their thing. Are we going to have a world where Stanford is going to impact millions of people instead of just the, the few lucky 4% of people that get admitted and get the $100,000 scholarships and so forth? Are we going to move to a world where, and you, you discussed the establishment of a campus in New York and what was the problem there. But with online, you, you can reach people without having to make that huge investment. I think that, so what we've learned a couple things about online that I think are really important. The first is it just throwing content out there doesn't really solve the problem. It helps a small number of very motivated students who can get through that content without any personal interaction or encouragement. But it turns out that's a small, a small number. The other problem you have is that when you throw content out there, you're making some assumptions about the level of preparation of the students. And I guarantee you that the distribution of people who may watch that content is much, much larger than, than that. So we've learned a few lessons about personal encouragement. One of the really big successes that was motivated by, the, by COVID was a group of my colleagues started a program called Code in Place, where they took our introductory programming curriculum and the videos, and they created a network of tutors and instructors around the globe who would work. They weren't responsible for the core content. The core content was on video, but would work with the students in small groups to really help them master the material and answer questions. And that's been incredibly successful. So I think we've finally got an understanding that you've got to keep the human element in it. There's got to be some, that human element is encouraging the students to push it, particularly for students who are struggling with course material. So I think we can find a way to use technology for what it's good at and then use human touch 
to play a role as well. And that may be, that may be the future of what we're, how we're thinking about this educational role. So the folks back at Stanford campus who are cranking out these textbooks and maybe some core videos and material, like that would be the, that would be the cloud. And then these remote places where you have someone on the ground who is the facilitator, that's the edge device. And as long as you have high quality compute and storage happening on the edge, combined with this high quality storage and compute in the cloud, then you've got yourself work. But clearly it, you need some something at the edge that will the content on the cloud function well. Yeah. And I think that's the lesson we've learned. You just can't throw content out there and, and hope that students can master it. And, you know, if you look at, it's not what people do. If I have people on the edge, they're adaptive. Okay. I, I, I see what you don't understand, right? I mean, if you just throw the content out there and then the students stuck with, watch that lesson again and again and again, and I still don't get it, right? So we need a, we need a, bit, a way to be more, the adaptiveness. Now, it may be that there's interesting research going on in using AI techniques to master learning mechanisms, understand different learning mechanisms, and actually make online content even more adaptive. We're not there yet, but people are working on the problem and we could make a breakthrough mm -hmm. there. Now, would the business model also have to change? I mean, I've been a proponent at Berkeley of this idea of, you know, Haas as a service. Our business school is called Haas. But the idea that, you know, more and more companies have moved from product models where you, you buy something and then you're done. And your relationship with the vendor is more or less complete to a world where you have this continual engagement with the provider. You're a subscriber and you you access whatever it is you need sort of in, in continuous time, right? So whether it's transportation as a service or software as a service, should we think of education as a service? You talk about the importance of continuous learning. And, you know, you spent a lot of your time with alums. It seems like most of the time you're spending with alums was basically fundraising and helping them to getting their, their insight into how to sculpt the educational mission. But you can also be providing those alums with ongoing education because what they learned is going to be obsolete, right? Or at least part of what, I mean, maybe if you give them a really good operating system, but you're still going to have to update stuff. Can we see a world where you're a Stanford person from age 18 or maybe even age younger than that until the, the day you die, right? You're part of this community, this learning community, and no matter where you are in the world, you're participating in this educational mission. Yeah. I, I think the answer that's probably yes, particularly in fast moving fields, right? I mean, if you, and in fact, the, the engineering school at Stanford has done a lot of this where we're teaching, you know, here's a, here's a three course sequence in crypto, right? Because when you were in school, crypto wasn't a thing and now it is. And so you've got to, you want to bring yourself uh, up to date in it. Uh, I think business schools have done some of the same kind of thing in executive roles and various things with new technology. Um, and, and certainly medical schools have done this as well, right? And, and I think particularly deals where it's fast moving, you can see that. But I think there, there's probably more and more of the notion that you being a lifelong uh, student and the, putting content up that doesn't require lots of production work on it isn't that expensive. So making these things readily available to alumni is, is really fine and works well. And I think trying to engage with, you'd really, you'd really like to have that kind of lifelong relationship with your alumni as well. Mm -hmm. Now, you talk in the book at, towards the end about legacy, and there's a lot of things that you, know, you leave behind. But, but I think one of the most important things that 
at least a lot of people are talking about is, is access and, and affordability. As we speak, it was not too long ago that there was some legislation around student loan relief and so forth. But, you know, a lot of people have argued that education, high quality education is just beyond the reach of a lot of people. And yet it seems like the people who are graduating with the most debt are not the ones graduating from Stanford universities. They're the ones that are graduating from the school of cosmetics or whatever. Graduating from the school of cosmetics, even worse, right? Leaving with $4,000 and no degree, right? That's yeah. Real. So how can universities better perform this mission of public service and to give greater access to, to education? So I think there's three parts to this. The first part is what the states have done to cut back on the funding. I mean, you take UC, the finest public education system in the country, right, with institutions like Berkeley that are the rival for the best universities in the country. And that underfunding of them over a long period of time has really undermined things. And you see the debt of Berkeley students going up and the, the gap it's going up by is the amount that state has reduced the budget by. So that that's not the right thing. We want a, a public investment in, in education. And I'm a believer community college should be free. Just make community college free for Pete's sake, right? Secondly, we as institutions also need to tame the rate at which costs are growing up. And we've got to find ways to do things more efficiently for our students. So we also have an obligation. We can't let costs rise at at the rate they've been rising, which is probably inflation plus one and a half or 2%. And a few institutions like Stanford have enough money to kind of just give more financial aid. But that's not true for probably 80% of the institutions in the U.S. They can't afford it. The third is institutional responsibility. So right now, we have far too many students who don't graduate college, who start and don't graduate, not at great institutions like Berkeley or Stanford, but at La. You know, the national graduation rate for full-time students is about 55 to 60 percent. Well, that means you've got a lot of students who took on debt and didn't get a degree to finish it. That's a shared responsibility. Clearly, there are issues that are the students, but it's also the institution's responsibility. And right now, we put all the burden on the student. Right. And why don't institutions have some responsibility when students default on debt? Because most of the students who default either didn't graduate or got a degree that did not prepare them for a career. So the institution should be taking a larger responsibility for that. And that would help. Uh, Believe me, if if you told an institution you're responsible for half the default debt of your of your students, boy, they're going to be a lot more careful about who they admit and making sure they graduate. So last question, Um, you know, you said at the beginning of the book that, you know, you never know what your life journey is going to look like, you know, ahead of time, right? But you knew, you knew at a very young age, you always wanted to be a professor, right? I mean, I I too knew at a very young age that I wanted to be a teacher and I've never wavered from that end goal, but you've gone off and started a company, you've gone an administrator, and you talked about how each of those decisions was, was somewhat difficult because each of them took you away from what you loved. Your wife actually said in the book, you quote her as saying that when you were department chair of engineering, you know, I was like your happiest job. So why leave it? Why start a company? How did you let yourself get talked into this? And yeah, how did you yeah, kind of yeah. let yourself get talked into being a university president? I never, I never, so started the entrepreneur thing. I never thought I'd do it. I mean, I, I had worked at one of my colleagues, Jim Clark had started Silicon Graphics. And so I had, I was a consultant there, but I never thought I'd start one on my own. And when we did our work on reduced instruction set computing, you know, we published the papers. We thought 
this is such a great idea. We're done. You know, we're going to clamor after this idea. And then the, the, the two companies that had projects going kind of based on work they had done, work that Dave Patterson had done at Berkeley and work we had done, canceled their projects. And somebody came to me and said, you want this technology to get out there? It basically obsoletes too many existing products these guys have. So you got to go out and do it. So he, he convinced me and my two co-founders to go do it. And I'm glad I did. It was a great learning journey. What a, I mean, you want to learn something fast, go into a startup because you work at, you're working at light speed. I mean, it really is a crunch time. You know, I, uh, my administrative journey was step by step. I mean, I'm, it's the proverbial frog in the pot of water is getting warmer right here. And I really enjoyed being a dean of engineering and it was a wonderful job. And um, when President Casper asked me to be provost, I had to think really hard about it. And I tell a story about going to hear Condi Rice um, uh, give a talk in, in the book and about how higher education had changed her life because her grandfather got this opportunity to go to college and he was a black sharecropper in Alabama. And had that never happened, her life would have been so different. And she said, that's why I've been so dedicated to universities. And I said, you know, people do have to lead the institution. It may not be what your lifelong love has been, but it's a vitally important role. And if you can enjoy it and find rewards in it uh, and people think you're qualified, you ought to think about doing it. So it seems like, you know, in business school, we teach courses on how to persuade. It sounds to me like we should be teaching courses on how to be persuaded because it seems like you were persuaded, <laughs> how to be persuaded. <laughs> you know, by a lot of people. Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me. The book is called Leading Matters, and everyone should check this out. Of course, we've got the other book, Computer Architecture. I wouldn't yeah. recommend this to everybody. Perhaps a, a more discriminating group of readers might want to check that out. But but thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And we'll chat again sometime soon. Great. Thanks, Greg. I enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.